Um, okay, so the topic today is uh, triage in halacha, uh, basic principles, and I'm going to try and be as as uh, basic as I can. Um, so it'll be um, perhaps a little bit slower than I usually go. I hope so. So I want to talk about basic principles, and we'll talk about the fundamental challenges of addressing this kind of topic at all. I think that doing the uh, that we're gonna I'm gonna start by doing by doing source material and about 20 minutes in probably I'm gonna stop and start talking about philosophy um, because I think you can't do this topic without doing the philosophy as much as you do the um, as much as you do as much as you do the lumbus. Um, now you all know that this topic has been um, very immediate um, for some time now. There's some hope that it's less immediate in the future that that we're sort of coming to it at the tail end when the hard decisions have already been made and in many ways, and I'll talk about that on Thursday more. Um, but today we should deal with this, right? Is these are uh, these are issues of the fascists, right? That um, assume that what we say today matters and that it really affects life and death for, uh, for lots of, right? For people making decisions. And I would say that the reason I was spurred to think hard about this was conversations with several doctors uh, from doctors trying to uh, talk about what their what their role should be, and a lot of what I'm uh, I haven't I haven't dealt um, thank God I guess with um, patient care directly. Those aren't the kind of issues I've uh, talked about. But I've talked with doctors about what their what their decision making process uh, would be in cases like this, or and to you know, talk through a case or two in specific cases. So that's where I'm coming from. So I want to start by, I'm going to start by doing basic uh, source of yes, uh, And then, then yeah. I'm going to, um, and then we're gonna, we'll, we'll talk in, and do the theoretical stuff after we get through the first major source. Uh, I'm going to start by just talking about, uh, briefly, by talking about the dangers uh, you can get into when you, even a subject that you know really well. Uh, so let me just, let me just share the, uh, the source sheet. So the first page, right, which we can do well, um, we're still getting well. We're still getting people to join. Uh, I don't think there's anyone in the waiting room anymore. It uh, looks like we're fine. Um, okay, is uh, that that in a lot of this topic has been based, um, ironically, on a non-existent pasuk, and I myself have been guilty of this. So at chataya ni maskir hayom, but I want to I want to mention that uh, up front. Um, but I'll show you that I have precedent. So nefesh chayim through chayim belajin, a pretty reputable source says v'zesh amar katuv. These are the mitzvot which a person shall do and live by them. Right? That's what the Torah says. And he tells you what that means. It means, you know, really, means you should really live inside the mitzvot, which makes you, uh, right, which uh, enables you to be surrounded by Gan Eden. Right? Very nice. Uh, the Shev Shemaitza, uh, right, also known as the Ksos, in his uh, introduction says, uh, and that means the person should live in such a way that they really become a Nishmat Chaim. Okay, this is all a very familiar pasuk. I quote it all the time. But the Shudah for Kastadanya points out uh, correctly. It says, that lots of people, I'm trying to tell you, Rav Chaim Belezhin, the Ksos quote this Pasuk, and it doesn't exist. Because if you look in um, very good Chet Pasuk, the Pasuk is, um, right? Now it happens that there are three other Pasukim that use Vachai Bemer analog. Yecheskel says, uh, 
right? If Cheskel says it, um, in Cheskel Alv, it says it three times. Chukotai Mishpatai Asher Yaseratam, Chukotai Mishpatai, Chukotai Red, and then in, in Nehemia you get Mitzvotav Mishpatecha. So the phrase Vachaybem shows up a lot, but the Pasuk Ela Mitzvot Asher Yaseratam Adam Vachaybem doesn't exist, and at Chatayani Meskiriyom I have built any number of Shurim on a Diuk in the word of Ela. I don't think it affects the content dramatically, but I wanted to just acknowledge it. So if you hear that Pasuk quoted, and if you hear old Shurim of mine in which I say something about the word Ela, you should know that that is just a mistake. Um, uh, I guess, you know, in, self, in addition to quoting Rechaim Velashen the Choshen, there is a story about uh, the elder Rabbi Berzon, I forget his name, Rabbi, the, uh, Rabbi Azariah Berzon's father uh, was giving a drasha in the Rav's shir on a pasuk, which um, impresses the Rav no way, and in the end he turns to the Rav and says, okay, now find the pasuk that I, get, that I, that I gave this drasha on, and it turned out he had made up the pasuk. Um, right, so... And so other, you know, so other people have done it. Okay, good. Now hopefully everyone, uh, we're, we're all in, we're all involved. So I want to do what I think is the primary source. I want to read it with you um, carefully, and then talk about what you think it means. And then I'm going to go into a methodological introduction, and then we'll go into the rest of the, uh, the rest of the shir to set out basic principles. So the Gemara in Pesachim says, Ki asa Ravin Amar When Ravin came, he said in the name of Rabbi Yochanan. Bakol misrapin, you can heal yourself using any means, um, any means uh, at your disposal. Except for these three things, you can't, right? You can't heal yourself using um, idolatry, whatever avadazara, right? However you translate avadazara, which various kinds of sexual sins, and the shedding of blood. Okay, so this sounds like a statement of Rabbi Yochanan, but in the Gemara and Sanhedrin. Uh, essentially, the same content is put in a different historical context. There's a historical issue here, because Rabbi Shimon ben Yotzedek is uh, is a borderline Tana Amora, right? So he's late, and so he could not have been in the Aliyah of Beit Nitsa Belud, which is um, immediately after the destruction. So they must be reporting a much older tradition. So this isn't just Rabbi Yochanan. This is a much older tradition. It says, Nimnu v'gamru baliyat benitza belud, and if they're in benitza belud, so right, there probably are during an oppression where they have to hide, right? They can't meet in their normal place. And so this is a very, you know, it seems to me always this was a very lamaasa question. What things do you have, when they're making this decision, they're not deciding it theoretically, they're just, right, they're making a judgment for the community that is in front of them. Kol avirot shabatorah, imamlin l'adam avor ve'al tehereg, avor if, if all that right now we're not talking about healing yourself, we're talking about if people tell you sin or die, transgress or die, so you're supposed to transgress and not die, except for these three things. You can't, right? You you um you have to die rather than perform these three things, right? That's analogous to you can't heal yourself using these three things. The only reason I put both in is that you should be aware that there um that to some extent this can challenge what is usually called the active-passive distinction, which is going to play a role later. Okay, so now the Gemara says, is that really true, Vavadazara lo? Is it really true that you're not supposed to commit Vavadazara rather than die? We have a bright time, which Rabbi Shmuel says, how do we know that if they tell a person, worship Vavadazara um, or die, that you're supposed to worship Vavadazara? And he quotes the Pasuk. The Pasuk says, Vachaybehem, right, our Pasuk, Vachaybehem, Veloshiyem, Lispehem. So Rabbi Shmuel takes this as a blanket statement, it seems. 
you're always all the mitzvot are subject to the claim that you're they're supposed to be performed to live and not die, and there's no mitzvah that you should die for. What's his exception? He says, the mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem is the only exception to the claim of a Chaybahem. And if there's no issue of Kiddush Hashem involved, and he defines Kiddush Hashem, right, possibly as the presence of a quorum, right, maybe a halachic minion, maybe um, a halachic quorum that isn't defined the same way as a, as a prayer minion, and everything else you're supposed to give up. So how can you claim, right? And he says it specifically about Avodah Zarah. So how could you claim that... Um, that you have to die that you have to die rather than commit a zara. So the answer is that the um the, the that Rabiokan and Neymar Shum Yotzedek are following the position of Rabbi Eliezer. And Rabbi Eliezer held, right, the half to the Shemalokecha Bakhovcha the Khonashukha Bakhom Modecha. Um right passive from Kriachma, Imnamar Imnamar Bakhol Nafshukha, Lama Namar Bakhom Modecha, Imnamar Bakhom Modecha, Lama Namar Bakhol Nafshukha. Why does it mention both wealth and life? Okay, sounds like, right, Rabbi Lezer is arguing that the, the phrase, um, right, love of God means not worshiping Avodah Zarah. And he derives from that, since it says you have to love God with all your nefesh, he derives from that that you have to die rather than betray your love of God, which means you have to die rather than commit Avodah Zarah. Okay. But the fundamental question that we're asking, which is, um, what do I have to die for, right? What do I have to die rather than transgress? The answer is, there's a pasuk. The pasuk says, "V'hafteshem lokecha b'chol nafshecha." Okay. Gili arayos of shrichus damim. So, right, so that tells us about about Avodah Zarah, where we had a specific position the other way, Rabbi Shmuel. But the truth is, we probably thought that Rabbi Shmuel didn't just say it about Avodah, about Avodah Zarah specifically, Rabbi Shmuel said it about Avodah Zarah and Kal V'chomer, everything else. So, right, so now we've said, okay, Avodah Zarah, but, we, but up here, we said there are three things. Where do we get the other two from? The Gemara says, Gili Arayos HaShrichos Damim, they follow Rebbe. Okay, what did Rebbe say? The Tanya. Rebbe Omer, so there's a Pasuk which says, Ki ka'ashir yakum ish al-re'ehu r'tzacho nefesh, That this thing, Adavar um, which in context is adulterous rape, um, is parallel to murder. We're going to leave aside the uh, right the problem that the equation seems to be to the wrong side of the terms as to who is the who, who's the uh, who's the criminal and who's the victim. We're going to just treat it straightforwardly that there is a um, an equation in this verse between adulterous rape and um, and murder. And so the Gemara says, well, that's right. It sounds like we're learning something from murder, but what have we learned from murder? So the Gemara ends up saying, and how it derives this right now is not our issue. It ends up saying that this is an equation that goes two ways. One is that just like you're allowed to, um, to kill an adulterous rapist to save the victim, so too you can kill an attempted murderer in order to save the victim. And then what matters to us is Right, that the parallel goes the other way. Just like you should die rather than commit murder, so too you should die rather than um, rather than commit adulterous rape. Okay, but now the Gemara says, "Hang on a sec. So you're telling me that we get avodah zarah, right? How do, how do I know you have to die rather than commit avodah zarah? Because there's a pasuk." And how do I know that you have to die rather than commit adulterous rape? 
because, or rather they commit adultery, let's say, right? It's not, it's um, either way, that the rape is not significant in the way the Gemara learns it uh, in that, in that, for that purpose, because it's compared to murder. Okay, so that Gemara says, yeah, but how do you know that you have to die rather than commit murder? And so the Gemara gives fundamentally a two-word answer, svarahu. That's a rational position. And then it tells you a story um, that may be intended to illustrate or to um, right, or to provide this word. It makes a big difference whether it's intended to illustrate or intended to provide. Right? Somebody came in front of Rabba, or depending which which Gersi you have, right? Rabba, Rabba, whatever. Uh, and said to him, Amarli Mori Duroy. So the owner of my feudal lord essentially said to me, Zil Katle Lapanya, go kill him. And if you don't go kill him, I'm going to kill you. Amarle. So Rabba, right? So and the implicit question to Rabba was, can I go kill the other person or not? If you're writing the dramatic version, presumably the other person is Rabba himself. And is that right? Uh, which case Rabba, but usually we don't we don't make it dramatic and we assume that is dealing with a um that he's really asking, you know, an abstract halachi question, right? I was told by my feudal lord, my mafia boss, whatever it may be that I have to kill somebody else uh, or else I'm going to be killed. Am I allowed to do that? Amrlaid, he said, let them kill you, but you don't kill. Okay, so that's a, um, all right, that's one way of framing the statement. The issue is better to be killed than to kill. Then he has a second way of framing it. He says, but who says your blood is redder? Maybe the blood of the other person is redder. Um, other versions of the Gemara have instead of Mi Yemar, who says, is my chazit. What have you seen? Okay. So we come to basic principles of triage. This Gemara, right, this is where for me everything starts and essentially everything ends. Um, and to me, this is an astounding thing because you would think the question of what you have to die uh, rather than transgress would be the thing that you needed a biblical verse for. Um, and instead, um, instead the Gemara makes a very radical claim. Not only does the Gemara say, I don't need a biblical verse to teach me this. I know that I can't commit murder to save my life because it's a svara. The Gemara, also, the Gemara says further that um, the way I know that you can't commit um, adultery is by analogy to murder, which I only know through svara, which means that the Torah wrote this comparison between adultery and murder on the assumption that readers would get this svara. So what that means to me, right? Here's the argument I want to make, is that the, um, the Torah is written and can be properly interpreted only by, uh, only by people for whom this svara is self-evident. Right, so I argue this is why I said this svara is prior to Torah. It's the thing you have to understand before you read Torah. If you get to Torah, if you get to Torah after reading it, so then you're not going to understand this. You're not going to understand this verse either, because this verse is built on the presumption that you already know this svara. Uh, my teacher, Rabbi J. David Bleich, uh, argues, and I accept his argument that this is the clearest and maybe one of the only places, maybe the only place. I think he used to think it's the only place. And um, now he's argued for a, uh, at least a second notion of some version of natural law in Judaism, meaning that there is an independently derivable uh, notion of right and wrong. Uh, 
Okay. Now that puts a lot of weight. Um, that puts a lot of weight on this. Um, and now the question we have to ask is, if this is so central and fundamental, right? If this is the svara which precedes the Torah, um, so then how does right? Are the do the normal rules of halachic interpretation apply to it? Right. I mean, do I um, right? Do I try to figure out what it means? in the same way that I try to figure everything else out? Or do we say that, no, like this is maybe an area of halacha which is less subject to the, what we'd call the normal rules of kolei hora'ah, right, where we follow authority, um, and more the kind of case where we say, look, you know, there are a bunch of available options, and this one is the one that it seems to me is a moral svara. And to end, right, to rule like a position which doesn't strike you as morally self-evident is, in a sense, a contradiction, right? Because the whole claim here is that this has to be something which is morally self-evident. So I want to take that position, that on this issue, the, um, the way to do halakha is not the way it might be ordinarily where we say, halakha often, we say that there is, we always have to say that there's, there's a, the possibility of a gap between the authoritative meaning and the substantive meaning. And we allow that, right? So, you know, because sometimes, right, you can't, right, you, you can't uh, always get the truth, and so you follow rules often to decide what the halacha is. But I don't think that that gap is anywhere near as tolerable in what is supposed to be a first principle as it is in, um, in something which is supposed to be derived from the text. So that's one level on which I think that this is um, very different and that's really, really critical. And so I think this is the basic principle to understand what the meaning of the svara is, right? Um, and is it encompassed by the phrase, be killed and, right, be killed and don't kill, which sounds like it's very focused on the action of killing. Or is it focused on the phrase, who says your blood is redder than his, which focuses not on the actions and not on, right, and, um, but rather on the people. And then, if you, even, if you, right, even if you say that it focuses on the people, so now we have to ask ourselves a fundamental literary question, which is, is this question intended to be rhetorical? Meaning that there is no answer to the question, what have you seen that makes your, right, that makes your blood redder? Or is it intended to be substantive? Right, that in cases where you have no evidence, right, you have no basis for saying it, then you can't, right, then you can't say it. But in cases where we could all agree that it is possible to, um, to, say, to understand whose blood is redder, simplest example where somebody might make an argument like that is what happens if you're choosing between one person and two people? So you can see somebody saying, okay, so now I know it's not, right, it's not a question of the intensity of the blood, it's the question of the quantity of blood. So that's right. So those are. Right, so you have at least three different ways, even if you think that this encompasses the svara, right, this line, you have at least three different ways of understanding it. One is that it's focused on the action of killing. Uh, one is that it's focused on the equivalence of people. And then within the, within the option that it's focused on the equivalence of people, you have the, um, the question of whether it's a purely rhetorical question or it's a substantive question which can be answered. 
And then you can, of course, decide on you know, what, is, what degree of confidence do you need in order to be able to answer the question, um, what sorts of answers are legitimate, what sorts of answers are not legitimate, those sorts of issues. Um, and that to me, right, that to me is where everything, everything else comes from, uh, everything else comes from this, from this question. Uh, so now I want to do a, uh, I want to back up and I want to talk about what the um, endeavor of, what the endeavor we're engaged in here, right, uh, talking about triage and halacha, pardon me one second, actually, um, yeah, uh, I might want to refer to an outline at some point. Um, so I want to um, talk about, actually, I thought I brought up the book, but now I put it down somewhere. There are two books uh, that when I started teaching uh, Medical Ethics Again Academy were the basis of my course. And I, they still, you know, I think, think they're still the where I start from. Uh, one is a book by uh, Professor Noam Zohar um, called Alternatives in Jewish Bioethics, which has an excellent introduction. And in the, it's a good book generally, but the introduction is the thing that most matters to me. And I'm sorry that I seems to put it down somewhere and not, I don't remember where, so I can't show you the cover. And what he sets out at the very beginning is a claim that halachic ethics is a contradiction in terms. Uh, halachic ethics is, ethics as he defines it, have to be universally accessible, which means that I have to make arguments. Uh, when I make an ethical argument to you, it has to be an argument that you can understand and you can reach the same conclusion on your own. And so halachic arguments don't, fit, don't, meet, don't uh, meet those criteria because they're based on things that aren't universal. They're based on revelation, right? They're based on, they're based on text. And secondly, he said they have, to apply, they have to apply equally to all ethical actors. And halacha often doesn't fit that because it does not obligate Jews and non-Jews equally. And it does not necessarily apply to Jews and non-Jews equally. And therefore, he argues that the realms of halacha and ethics are radically distinct. And the underlying critique of much, I should say, you know, that um, the field of what we call halachic medical ethics has been enor you know, enormously, uh, enormous creative endeavor over the past 70 years or so, uh, beginning really with Lord Jacobovitz. But what Professor Zohar argues, and I think that he's in many cases right, and he's not the only one who has said this, I think he just says it really well, is that often what we're doing is not halachic medical ethics, what we're doing is medical halacha. And medical halacha and Jewish medical ethics are not the same thing at all. And the question is, what's the space for Jewish medical ethics? Right? Where, do we, where do we do Jewish medical ethics as opposed to halacha? Uh, maybe there is no such thing. Um, so there is another book, uh, which I recommend very highly. Uh, I don't know if you can see it. It's called The Duty and Healing. Um, by uh, Dr. Benjamin Friedman, Allah Shalom. Uh, it's one of my favorite books in the world. Um, I do always remind, tell people that if you're going to buy a copy, which you should and read it, you should make sure that the second edition, for some reason, was published. Somebody did a global, a global uh, search and replace and took out almost all the periods and commas. So it's very hard to read. So if you want, you want to try to find out in advance if you get a copy with punctuation. Um, so Dr. Friedman was a clinic, an, an Orthodox Jew, a Talmud Chacham, and a clinical ethicist in a, um, in a purely secular hospital. And so the, what the book is an attempt to provide, right, to provide with integrity, um, ethical consultations in an Orthodox, right, from an Orthodox, a believing Orthodox, committed 
halachic Orthodox Jew in a way that is meaningful to an audience, um, practically meaningful, useful to a completely um, to a, right to an audience right none of whose members have these um, none of whose members have these commitments um, right so the question is um, right how do you do that so what he says is that what you do is you adopt the interpretations of halacha that are um, right that are compatible essentially with Professor Zohar's definition of ethics right you adopt the you adopt the interpretations of um, of halacha that are rationally accept, universally accessible I mean that you that these are interpret these are arguments the halachic arguments that emerge are arguments that make sense even if you don't have prior halachic commitments and that apply to Jews and non-Jews equally uh, because you can't make arguments in a pluralistic um, hospital for treating Jews separately differently than non-Jews. You can make arguments that some people, that each group should be treated in accordance with its own beliefs in certain ways, but you can't make arguments that distinguish, um, that distinguish between Jews and non-Jews per se. And that essentially seems to be, me to be the requirement for doing halachic ethics as opposed to halacha. And then we have to deal with the reality that for, as I understand it, for, um, for from doctors to participate in a, um, in a pluralistic hospital setting, um, and I would argue this is even true in Shari Tzedek, um, but that's, that's a little, you know, which is a formerly a halachic hospital, but that takes, that's, we can waive that discussion for now. So the only way in which, uh, so there are two ways in which their religion can, can play a role. Religion can say, "Look, these are the things you can do, and these are the things you can't do," and you right, and just fight for a you know, for a right of refusal based on conscience whenever it something happens the other way. And then you basically set yourself off. Right, all your, your arguments are particularistic. You're not really participating in the conversation, um, except as an interest group. And it might very well be that at a certain point you simply can't participate because there are just too many things that can't be done, um, or um, we do, right, we say that, no, we, we're going to try and find a way for them to participate in the life of the hospital fully, and that requires, right, following halakha in a way, right, following the interpretations of halakha, which are ethical in Professor Zohar's sense, meaning that they rest on arguments that are universally, uh, universally accessible um, and apply equally, to, uh, apply equally to all human beings. So then the question is, um, if we have an interest as a community in allowing our doctors to participate in their culture, right, in the culture of their hospitals as equals, as full, full equals, and the way we, to do that is that we have to present halakha in a way that is compatible with ethics. So is it really plausible to say, well, that's just what we say to them but it's not really what we think the halacha is. Or does the decision to participate in, uh, participate in the conversation and to say, look, this is, how, this is how you should present halacha in that context. This is how halacha functions in a society where halacha is just one of the voices in the conversation and doesn't have veto power, but nonetheless wants to have influence. So maybe we're bound by that. And that becomes the halacha that we... Um, that we have to follow, that is the halakha, that's the, right, that's the 
price or benefit of making halakha part of the human um, ethical conversation, or at least we should have a very strong bias. And where we can't do that, okay, then we might have to go to the recusal. So there, there are two other things that, um, that show up. One is there is, the, um, there is the reality of malpractice and uh, right, standards of care. And so uh, doctors are vulnerable if they, right, if they don't act on, the basis, uh, if they act on the basis of religion as opposed to on the basis of professional ethical standards. So that's a practical matter. And then in this case of triage, I think something came up that was uh, much more challenging, which is we're dealing with issues that are yehareg valyavor, we're dealing with issues that you have to die rather than um, rather than commit. Which means if you participate in a conversation about which things are yehareg valyavor, and those conversations are on the big level, right? Can you murder to right to save a life? They're on the granular level. What is considered murder? And so you participate and you present a halachic position. And you lose. So the stakes, right? At that point, right? Right now, if this, at that point, either we say, right, we say, okay, you really can't participate in this in good faith because you're going to be constantly recusing yourself ethically on the right in the in the immediate life and death issues, or we say you're allowed to participate. But how can we say you're allowed to participate if these are uh, right? If this is your hegvayavor. And that's an enormous uh, moral cost for from doctors, right? If you, right, if you, right, if you, if you give a halacha which is very concrete, and you say this is murder, and then the standards of care of your hospital or your state say, under these circumstances, this is what you have to do, and you decide that you want to function in this hospital community, and right, and so you go ahead. So we're telling you not just that you, you know, that you did, that you, that you violated halacha, but you did something as you heard valyavor. So we have to be very cautious about making very strong, concrete claims about um, what halacha says about specific cases, because um, in some cases, right, you know, what you're, you're being very helpful because your doctors ask you and you give them guidance and that enables them to live their lives. And in some cases, you um, push them into choices that are extremely, extremely, um, extremely psychologically uh, painful or even damaging. Uh, now, sometimes people live with this conflict, um, and sometimes halacha comes to terms with this conflict. The easiest example of this is the question of whether you can violate Shabbat to save non-Jews. Um, so I imagine that most of you know that a black letter halacha in the Talmud, you're not supposed to violate Shabbat to save non-Jews. Uh, I imagine that most of you are also aware that um, so as far back as we know it, um, Halakhically observant Jewish doctors have always violated Shabbat to save non-Jews. Uh, and halakhists have struggled for a thousand years to try and figure out how it is that this, right, how it is that this happens. Um, right? And, you know, up to the, front, up to the present day, uh, people offer various kinds of rationales. I have my own, which is not relevant, um, which is not relevant right now. But there's an example, you know, where... I think, you know, I think on the whole, people who decide to be doctors come to terms with the, uh, with, you know, that there hasn't always been a convincing answer, but that we agree that in such circumstances, you do the ethical thing and we figure out why later, in a sense. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of stories about various rabbis saying something exactly like that. You know, I would do it, right? What would happen if the case came up? Well, I would do, I would do what I believe to be the ethical thing. And then I figure out the answer later. That's very dangerous. What about other areas, right? That, right. Um, 
And um, right, so we're very hesitant about arguments like that in other cases. But in this case, in this issue, that has certainly been the um, been been uh, a phenomenon. And maybe we'll just say the same thing is true here. That we'll you know meta- that we'll have the conversations about triage as an abstraction. But at the end of the day, the doctors will do um, what they do, and they'll live with it. Um, that doesn't seem to me to be living up to uh, to you know, I guess the Center of Voluntary Leadership's motto of taking responsibility for Torah to say we're just going to leave you out there on your own. We don't have a really good answer. That doesn't seem to me to be the right, um, the right approach. Um, so I want to come up with something that meets these goals. On the one hand, but I have to be aware, you know, so I started, I should say, I started writing um, an article about triage and COVID-19 and ventilators. And... I had abstractions, you know, as to how I thought it would work if I were writing an abstract halachic piece. And though they were not compatible with the standards of care, crisis care that were being put out by hospitals. Um, and this is true. Um, this is also true, I think we'll see, of the guidelines put out by Refreshal Schechter. Uh, it's hard. It's hard, right? It's hard. It's, right? People, if you start in the abstract and you're engaged in internal halachic conversation, it's very hard to reach the conclusions reached by the standards of crisis. What it might be possible to do is to say that granted that these are the, that to this extent, these are the parameters. It might be possible to justify them halachically. Now the question is, do we have an interest in doing that? And then can we say, right, can we maintain this complicated position that if you had asked me in advance, this is what I would have told you what to, to do, but this is what you can, but this is what, I can tell doctors they can work within, even though the difference is there's a whole set of cases that come up practically, which are Yehreg Valyavor, right? If you asked me in advance, I would have said you have to die rather than doing this, but now they're doing it okay. Right? That's a very hard position to sustain. We can do it, you know, by normal halachic mechanisms by saying things like, well, this is the position of the but Bidyevid, you can rely on that, but to say it's about Yehreg Valyavor, uh, that you're, you're allowed to be so much on a Bidyevid position, that's very, very hard. Um, so I think I want to point out that challenge, um, that challenge as well. But here, it might be that um, that trying to develop a halacha which is compatible with the ethics, with the ethical intuition of the society around us, is a somewhat more defensible endeavor, um, since it is derived so far, exclusively from Svara. So this is an area of halacha where it might be that uh, ethics plays a more direct role. Then the question is, on the one hand, you could argue, no, and this is the place where we have no space for compromise because it has to be an intuition that precedes Torah. On the other hand, maybe it's a space where we have more room for, um, for looking to reconcile with people's ethical intuitions because, in fact, we're not coming from Torah. We admit we're not coming from Torah. What we're doing is building on what we think is a core ethical intuition. So that's the right, that's the um, the methodological introduction I want to set out. Um, that what I'm engaged in in this process is what I would call halachic ethics as opposed to halacha. But I think that once one engages in the process of halachic ethics, and one is bound to make the halachic ethics the halacha even if the canons of argument aren't the same as those that are ordinarily engaged in. And particularly, I think that in this case, even the internal 
um, conversation of halacha should be different than it is in other places because it explicitly states that it has to be something uh, that appeals to ethical reason. Okay, that's the very, very long uh, introduction. And then what I want to do is I want to spend, I want to spend a little bit of time um, spelling out what I see as the fundamental question uh, halachically about how we understand this svara and take a position and then set up the problematics of right within the tradition of how you can write it, what makes what makes it very challenging to sustain uh, the position that I um, the position that I advocate for, and that will probably bring us to the end of the hour. And then next time we'll try and play that out in at least one concrete um, case. But I should that was a lot uh, to throw at people, um, so I should stop for a um, I should stop for for a minute and say if, if anybody. Uh, if anybody wants to ask questions, uh, now would be a good time to ask questions. Uh, can you hear me? Yep. Um, could we say that today, since we're not in Talmudic times, this Savara was their Savara, and all we can do is really say, for the Talmud, that seemed obvious. Not necessarily, it may not be our intuition, but we accept that in the, in the Talmudic reasoning, it was based on a Savara. Not our svara. So then, how would we play that halachically? Do we still do we base our halacha on that svara or not? Yeah, yeah, we would. We would just take that as a given from the Talmud. However, they derived it, whether it's from a pasuk or whether it's from a drasha or whether it's a, from a svara or Moshe, keep on Moshe Misina. You know, we just take it as Talmudic and we go from there. And we could formalize it and say, look, that was their svara. Yeah, right? and we don't really have the interpretation. Right, we don't have. We're not at their level, so we just sat right. So. We just have to take their interpretation of Torah. Right. We could say that, right? I would rather say that we should have a bias towards understanding them in a way that is still a svara for us, right? To say this as far which they think is so fundamental, and we're so distant from it that we're going to interpret in a way that, right? We're going to chokify it, right? As I say in other contexts, that seems to be very difficult. Right? You know, we become so distant from the purpose of halacha. It's so likely we get it right. So unlikely. It's so unlikely we get it right if they're working on intuition and we're just formalizing. But, you know, we do that with regard to hist- historicity, that they were closer to the sources. We just accept, we just accept that they were earlier and they know something that we don't know. So, we, you know, we do that to some extent by closeness to revelation. Yeah. Right. right? But Dafka, here, there is no question about closeness to revelation, right? The claim but is... But I mean, an analogous to it, that, that we just accept that this is what, this was their reasoning, whatever it happens to be. <laughs> we could. All right, anyway. I think it's very dangerous. Okay. Uh, okay, other questions? Uh, okay, there aren't other questions now. Well, we'll go back. It yeah. uh, seems like there are, um, there are sfaras from the Gemara that we take as so sacrosanct that even though we don't think they're true at all, uh, and we make people, you know, suffer for them, tan lamet of tan do, or uh, I mean, all kinds of sfaras that we, you know, if Salvechik felt like, oh, you can never change them, they're like, you know, chukim almost, uh, okay. you know, which is hard to understand. Yeah, so I, I mean, we should obviously talk about that in, um, in you know, in a much broader context. Um, I would say Tablamet of Tandu is not a svara. Tablamet of Tandu is a description. Um, and I don't think I'm saying anything radical by saying that nobody in halacha prior to the Rav ever considered the possibility that it was a metaphysical statement and no one since the Rav, other than direct students of the Rav, uh, or people who style themselves such as ever considered it, it, it was a mistake. Uh, I'll just say the frankly, it was a mistake. 
it was a shigigahi would say me pihashalit, and no prior halachist ever thought of tan lametav tan do that way, and no one should now. So I don't mind excluding that case entirely. We can talk about it in detail and how we prove that, but um, and I'm not the only, you know I'm not the only one who has said this. Rabbi Lichtenstein um, said this, so I, I don't. Uh, I'm I, I would I, I'm just I'm being rhetorical now because I know people often throw that out. That one is just not true. Uh, there are other I mean, the Rav said it, but it was a mistake. Um, there's, there's nothing else, you know. I wouldn't say because it's me against the Rav. I would say it because uh, I remember that. Uh, my friend Jakob Nagen once asked a question to our Rosenzweigen Shear in which he, you know, he started, kept piling on questions at the end. He said, Kohotorakula is against you. Uh, Rosenzweig never stopped making fun of him for that. Uh, but this is one of those places where Kohotorakula is against the idea that, that there are permanent metaphysical claims, that Chazakas are permanent metaphysical claims. Anyways, uh, Chazaka is not a Svara. Uh, I'll, I'll frame that also. And, and not every Svara is claimed to be so intuitive that the interpretation that Chazal say that the only way you can interpret the Torah properly is if you have this svar. Okay, that's a very strong answer. Okay. After I'm not, uh, okay. I'm not excessively responsive. Uh, but we can talk about that okay. I'm doing some other day. Okay, Shkaya. Okay. Um, okay. So now let's talk about what this svara means. Um, so I'm going to share my screen again. And there's a there's a toastfoot and a um, there's a toastfoot that is uh, fundamental to this. Uh, the toastfoot says, I'm, you know, I'm taking you out of the middle of a very long argument in the toastfoot. Right? So when is the murderer himself obligated to, to uh, give himself up to death rather than kill? Not to kill himself, but to give himself up to death rather than kill. That's before he kills with his hands. Um, right, we'll usually translate as actively. But where he does not do an action, and here the Tosafot comes up with a case that becomes endlessly controversial. Right, so you become right. Somebody else picks you up and throws you on a baby, and the baby dies. Okay, this becomes a highly problematic case because there's another party involved. Bracket that, right? The Chazanish says, you know, it'd be better off if you had a case where somebody's standing on a ledge and there's a high wind, and if he doesn't move off the ledge, the wind is going to blow him off and he's going to land on the baby carriage underneath, right? All, all sorts of grotesqueries. Doesn't matter to us. Right? Tosa says that there's, a, there's a difference between active and passive. And in that case, where what you're doing is you are causing a death passively, it seems to, it seems to Tosafot that you're not obligated to, um, to give up your life rather than fall on the baby. Because you can say just the reverse. Who says that your friend's blood, the baby's blood is redder than yours? Maybe my blood is redder. All right, because he's not doing anything. So what Tosfut says is that the Svara, who says your blood is redder than his, works in reverse. Who says, right, who says that his blood is redder than yours? And so all the Gemara is saying is that when confronted by a choice between your life and somebody else's life, you should stand still because you can't know which life to choose. Okay, if you write back in the Gemara, that means that they, that Tosas essentially ignores the line, let them kill you and don't kill. He doesn't take that as a substantive line, right, as a philosophic line, just as a description. And the ultimate line is, who says, his, who says your blood is greater than his? And that's a, a substantive claim, and you can reverse it. Okay, now that you can reverse it, 
doesn't mean that you could win it on other grounds. It doesn't mean you can say, I know my blood is redder because I'm smarter. I know my blood is redder because I have a better ethical intuition. I know my blood is redder because I run faster, right? Whatever it doesn't, but it opens up the possibility, right? And Tosus says, right? Because Tosus says that fundamentally we are really asking the question and you can ask the question this way. You can ask the question that way. Okay. Rav Chaim Soloveitchik, the Rav's grandfather, uh, argued that the Rambam disagrees with Tosfet. And the Rambam thinks that, um, that you cannot reverse the argument and that if you have a choice between killing someone else passively or, um, right, or being killed, you have to be killed rather than kill someone else passively. Okay, now it takes a lot to construct the case. Does he really think, right, it's a machlokas between the Rav and his brother of Aaron Soloveitchik, whether Rav Chaim thinks this is true even in the, baby, the, the Tosfus's baby case or only in the, in the Chazunisha's baby case, that doesn't matter to me right now. And I'm not going to spend the time um, right, right, as showing, argue, showing what Rav Chaim's argument for this is in the Rambam. Let's assume it's true. Okay, let's assume it's true that the Rambam argues with Tosfus. And now Rav Chaim says that the argument between Tosfus and the Rambam is um, can be formulated in the following way. It says, You can explain the Gemara's question, who says your blood is redder, in two ways. You can say, because the two of them are equal, So it turns out that the law is you have to be passive, and therefore you have to be, die rather than kill actively, but you can st- stand passively by and cause someone else's, you can cause someone else's death passively by um, even uh, in order to save your own life, right? That's Tosos' position. Odenema, he says an alternative understanding is, since the two people are equivalent, that means that you're, the prohibition on your part of killing them is not pushed aside by pikuach nefesh. And it doesn't matter, he says. So the Ramam says that, no, you, can, right, you, cannot, you can't reverse this Pharaoh, right? You cannot cause someone's death either actively or passively to save your own life, says Rav Chaim. Right? Now the question is, what is, how does he understand the Svara? Right, what is right? How does how do you emerge? How do you get this from a svara? Because Tosfos seems very right, right? Who's, who says your blood is redder than his? Who says who says that uh, who says his blood is redder than yours? So, the way I understand Rav Chaim is as follows what he says is that the um, we have a whole set of mitzvot, and we have the question do you have to live right? Do you, right um, do you have to die rather than violate these prohibitions? And he thinks the default is that you do have to. Okay, the default is you have to do, but now there's another passage which says, and it said, right? And we understand that in some way, Asher, it's cooler if it said Eva, but it doesn't. So right, we say, Asher Yaseotam means there are mitzvot which you, do, which you do and live by, and there are also mitzvot that you don't. And now we have to figure out which are which. Which mitzvot does the exception, Bechaibem, apply to, and which mitzvot does it not apply to? And now he says, so now we're asking the question, he says, not on the level of the people, right? We've, right? Because the question we're asking is, 
does the exception and live by them apply to prohibitions that involve killing other people, involve other people's death? And when you're asking the question in that way, the question is at the level of the mitzvot, as opposed to at the level of the people, you don't know which person will be on which side of the equation. And since you don't know which person will be on which side of the equation, it makes no sense to say that the exception, the chaybahem, applies to the right to such uh, to such averot that um, that are that involve the deaths of other people. So Rav Chaim ends up saying that what we do is we take the svara who says your blood who says your blood is redder than his, but we remove it from any individual case. We may, right we ask the question at the legislative level as opposed to at the case level, and what emerges is that whenever something is defined halachically as an act, as right as a prohibition related to that causes someone else's death, you have to die rather than commit it. Okay, that is, and the active passive distinction vanishes, and all considerations. Right, all considerations of um, all considerations of um, of, in, of individuality vanish. The question that comes up before the halachic Jew in every circumstance is: Do I have a sin here that involves loss of life? If the answer is yes, then you can't do it. Okay. Now that works. Um, that works uh, on a level where you are the party. But the question is now how we transfer this to cases where you are the third party. So we can transfer it on a level of saying, well, you can never commit, right? You can never commit a sin that involves loss of life in order to save somebody, in order to save somebody else. But situations often are much more complicated than that, where there's loss of life either way. So it's not clear, right? It's not clear how you transfer it. So the way we involve this, and I should have put this on the source sheet, but I didn't. Is so there is another famous case where the uh, where the Gemara distinguishes between uh, abortion and feticide to save the life of the birthing mother, and the Gemara says that abortion is permitted, but feticide is not. Right once the once the um, the fetus becomes an infant, right however that moment is defined, crowning whatever you want to write different ways, then the Gemara, then the Mishnah in, in Ohalot says ein dochin nefesh nifte nefesh. You can't push one soul aside for the other. I apologize, I didn't put that on the Makarot. I should have realized that I needed it. Um, so it seems to me if you put that together, right, you have a principle which says, uh, right, right, left, and the abortion case is much more complicated to figure out why that's different, but let's assume for now that the abortion case, for whatever reason, doesn't, um, doesn't, right, doesn't uh, fit in this context. So it sounds, it seems to me, that the way to understand the svara and the way where Chaim does with the svara is to say it sets up a, a principle that you're never allowed to choose one life over another. And that's formulated halachically as you can never choose to commit an action which sacrifices someone else's life, right? Which sacrifices, which sacrifices life X in order to save life Y. Right? So, ein doche nefesh bifei nefesh is the same principle as my It doesn't just limit, it's not just limited to your life and somebody else's. It's not a question about your self-involvement or anything like that. It's a statement, uh, it's about the ontological equality of all human life. 
Now, in order to get that, I will have to make moves that are not universal halacha, but are, um, but are you know, certainly acceptable in halacha, for example, assuming that this logic applies equally to Gentiles and, um, and to Jews, which Rav Chaim, I think, does say uh, clearly. Not everybody, else, uh, not everybody else does, and that's part of making the decisions uh, to adopt the interpretations of halacha that are most compatible with, um, with ethics. But what I want to argue, right, this is my first stage argument, is that what we derive from the Gemara, right, which says like the, the which sets up as the, the, you know, the, the alpha point, right, the place which everything starts from in Torah, the thing which you have to interpret Torah on the basis of is this Svara, and that the Svara is understood by Rav Chaim, um, takes the question as purely rhetorical. There's no answer to the question, who says your blood is redder than who says your blood is redder than his? And it applies to third parties, right? It applies to choices among other parties, as well as to choices between yourself and others. And the principle really is you're never allowed, I would say, to act in a way that suggests that one human being has more ontological value than another. Right? That's what I derive as a um, as the, the fundamental principle of triage. Now, right, I'm gonna, I'll take questions in five minutes, but I want to... I want to get through um, what I have to say. You know, there's a basic intellectual honesty to set up the problem for um, for the next year. Right, so the last line of Chaim says is, it says, It seems to me that the second explanation I offered, what he what he understands as the Rambam, um, right, which is that the question is asked legislatively and not on a case level, and therefore there's never an answer to the question, who says your blood is redder than his, because that's not relevant. We already made the law, and the law didn't know who would be on which side of the equation. Um, we know that we can learn that from the Gemara on, from Baba Basra. So, what's he talking about the Gemara from Baba Basra? So, the Gemara from Baba Basra has a, uh, a, a dispute about whether um, interest, illegally charged interest, is reclaimable in court. Um, Rav Nachman Bar Yitzchak says that the Pasuk Imach teaches you that it is returnable. In court, um, Rabbi Yochanan says it's not, so Rabbi Yochanan must have some other purpose for this verse. And the answer is, what does Rabbi Yochanan have, what purpose does Rabbi Yochanan have for this verse? He needs it for the following case. Right? There are two people walking, in the, walking on the road, and one of them is holding a canteen of water. If they both drink, then they both die. If one of them drinks, then he reaches civilization and water. So Darash ben Petura, so ben Petura taught mutav mutu. Best let both of them drink and let both of them die when the water runs out. And let uh, let neither let let not either of them see the death of the other. came along and said, Okay. So here we have a, an irony which we'll have to work out. On the one hand, right, the Gemara says very clearly, Rabbi, Rabbi Kiva says, your life comes before your friend's life. Let's assume for now, because that is in fact the overwhelming weight of the tradition, although the evidence is not the, the normal kind of evidence. Uh, but normal rules, we rule like Rabbi Akiva against any individual friend. Um, and we can decide whether that affects the, which way we pass it in the Machloket to Rabbi Ezra and Rabbi Yochanan about interest. We rule like Rabbi Akiva, which means that we rule, your life comes before your friend's life. Huh? We just said that there's a svara, the svara, that precedes everything else in Torah, that says, who says your blood is redder than his? And now the answer should be, well, I don't need it. 
I don't, what, you know, okay, that's a good Svarah, but I have a Pasuk. The Pasuk says, your life precedes your friend's life. So we have to find some way of enabling, right, this astounding claim that there's a Svarah that says that you can't choose your life over somebody else's, and, which, with, and then all the stages that entails, despite the fact that there's another verse which we understand as saying that your life does come first. All right, so that's certainly a right. If we want, when we try and and so now we have to try and figure out right. Doesn't how does that right? How does that modify our um, how does that modify our um, our other our other principle? Now, Chaim claims that this story proves that his logic is right, even though it seems like right. It seems like it should go the other way, right? It sounds like uh, right. It sounds like this right. This undermines the notion that there's an absolute principle. So Chaim says very straightforwardly, if I need a verse to tell me in that case that my life comes before somebody else's, that must mean that before the verse, I assumed it didn't. Even though we're talking about a case which looks passive, I'm just drinking the water, letting him die. So Rav Chaim argues that this verse actually proves the point that the svara is that your life, that you, that you, that you, you can never commit um, an action that causes someone else, you can never do something that leads to someone else's death Rather than yours, or in in a broader sense, you can never choose X's life over Y's, but somehow there has to be a narrow exception for this. Okay, that's the minor problem. The big problem is that this mission Horiot. The mission Horiot says, Aish Kodem men precede women, to keep them alive. Ula to return lost objects. And women come before men when it comes to clothing and to redemption. Uh, right, and then we have other circumstances in Man Shashtem Kodim Lekalkala Ish Kodim Lisha, and then we have another list: Kohen Kodim Levi, Levi Yisrael, Yisrael Lamamzer, Lamamzer Lenasin, Lenasin Legerv, Legerv. Right, we have a whole list of priorities that seem to be related to the claim Lachayot, right? To keep right to keep alive. So how can we claim that there is a fundamental principle of ontological equality if we have a Mishnah that sets up? A, a set of triage principles that seem to very clearly set different life, premiums in life uh, with others. Um, now, if we look at the end of that Mishnah, it says, if there's a mamzer talmud chacham, the coin godolam aretz, mamzer talmud chacham, kodim the coin godolam aretz. So that makes it much more complicated. And we could argue that the whole Mishnah is an exercise in rhetoric because it tells you all these things that should happen, but in practice, uh, everything really depends on individuality. And when you're in an emergency room, how do you know whether somebody's a Talmud Chacham or not? So we could just say that in practice, the, right, the rhetorical meaning of this Mishnah is that you can't make that choice. And really the purpose, the, the, right, the, the line of is intended to mean the same thing as who says your blood is redder than his. Because at the end of the day, all these distinctions, gender, lineage, all those sorts of things are trivial in comparison to the question of what you've made of your life. But that's a um, that's a problematic answer in its own um, in its own right. So I'd rather not take it. I just want to point out that it's available. What I want to say, right? And this is this is where we are at the end of the um, the end of the first year. Is you have three fundamental. Let's see, we could say four fundamental texts. And I'm sorry, I left out the fourth. One is what I think take as the primary text, which is there's a svara, and the svara, as I understand it following Rav Chaim Soloveitchik is that you can never make a choice which implies that one human being is ontologically worth more than another. 
Um, and that's formulated in the mission in Olot as endokin nefesh bifnei nefesh. But connecting to the mission Olot already raises a problem because it already tells you that fetuses don't get included in that because abortion is an exception to that. Then you have uh, the problem is how can you reconcile the notion that there is such a svara with the existence of a verse that we understand and paskin as meaning that your life comes before your friend's life? And even worse, how can we reconcile it with the existence of a Mishnah that seems to set up an order of priorities um, in triage? So in order to figure out how we set up, how, how halacha functions, we're going to have to try and find a way to reconcile all these texts. Uh, and I'm you know, upfront that I have a bias towards, uh, but I think it's a legitimate bias, both methodologically in terms of what we're trying to accomplish and in terms of the, under, the actual understanding of the text and the way halacha wants you to interpret them, uh, that the primary source is the svara, and every other text has to be understood as being compatible with the svara. And I'm adopting, um, I think, um, Rav Chaim, what I understand to be Rav Chaim Soloveitchik's understanding of that svara. Okay, that's probably um, enough. It's, it's an hour, but I should stop now and take questions. Uh, I'd love questions. And then Thursday, I will try to play out how these texts can be reconciled and hopefully at least begin to approach um, approach the questions uh, that we're dealing with in terms of uh, triage among ventilators. And then we'll see at the end of next year whether there's, whether there's a need for another one um, or not. Okay, uh, questions? So, um, get, maybe getting closer to Thursday, but it, I don't, the way you seem to have phrased Rav Chaim's position would suggest that if you have two people in front of you who are dying and you have medication that can save exactly one, you can't give it to either of them because that would be an action that would value one more than the other. Good. That's a rather disturbing view. That is. So I think what Rechaim would say, thank you, that pushes me to Thursday, I think what Rechaim would say is that the text that says you can choose your life over somebody else's, right, Rabbi Kiva's text, is really, right, what Rechaim says is, Ben Petoris says they should both, they should both drink and die. And, right? So why is that wrong? That's what should happen, right? Because you can't choose. Uh, and the Pasuk, so Rechaim says, no, the Pasuk teaches you that when the outcome of being unable to choose is silly, then you are allowed to make a choice. The question is based on what criteria. So one criteria is you can choose yourself over others, but maybe right. there are other criteria but only when the outcome is silly. Okay, all right. So you're saying you have to choose, but there are no criteria that have been supplied as yet. That's correct. Uh, well, all right, that's, that's right. No, well, we have a criteria. The criteria is that if the result of not choosing is that, right, is that, two, is that, is that both of them die, right. and the result of choosing is that one of them lives, so it makes no sense, right? So you don't take the choice. It involves... Right, that involves more people dying, including the person that you'd write, right, right, include, right, you don't, both of them dying or one of them dying, that makes no sense. Two against one may not be the same issue, but two including the one against just the one, that makes no sense. I think, there, I think, that's, I think that's how I would answer within Rav Chaim's framework. Well, here it's, the, the, one, the case I had was not two against one. Yeah. It was just one or exactly one will live. If you have a medication and give it to one of them, he will live and the other will die. Flip a coin. 
then you've done some action that produces one over the other. That's right. You did but, but the point is, the verse tells you that, it, that we, don't, we never allow that svara to lead us to a position where it leads to, right, where it, where it leads to pointless death. What about in the childbirth case? In the childbirth case, don't we let both of them die rather than choosing the mother or the baby? No, we're assuming that the, that the baby, the, right? If it's if it's if it's abortion, we choose the mother, and if it's and if the baby's already born, we choose the infant. But we never let them both die. Right? The question is what changes between the fetus and the infant, but we never let them both die. Uh, right? The way that the the way that Rav Chaim understands the Rambam, which I think is correct, we never let them both die. Oh, is that, is that clear? I, I'm not, I, we didn't look at the text now, but the, the, the phrase, Ein doch ein nefesh, ein nefesh, sounds like you don't, you don't have preference over either of them. Right, so in context, it means is you don't, you don't, you don't kill the, right, the, the, issue, the issue there is a breach birth, right, right? Uh -huh. uh, right? and so the only, right, the question is whether you um, allow the, the only way to, to save the mother's life is to, Right, is to be um, yeah, to essentially do a partial birth abortion, right? To chop, right? To to chop to chop the the infant up to allow right to allow it to emerge without without causing the mother to to bleed right to you know, to bleed uh -huh. right. And so the Gemara says that you can do that. You can dismember the, the fetus before it emerges. But once it's emerged sufficiently to consider an infant, then you have to allow the birth to take place. It's not, there's, it's not, there's no there's no possibility that that the mother's life prevents the baby from being born. Like, you're not, we're not talking about killing the mother so that the baby can- That's correct. We're not talking about killing the mother. Is there, is there, that, that, the cases that come up with complications of what happens if you have to actively, right? You gotta do something that actively damages the mother in order to extract the baby at that point. Um, and then we get to the same question, right? You know, the, the cases in the Mishnah as classically understood are case, right? You're choosing one light. You're choosing whether to actively interfere to, to um, to save to save the fetus or to passively allow the infant to live and and, and the mother to die. Right. Okay. Okay. Good. Excellent. Thank you for asking. I'm, I got. I apologize for not putting it on the makarot. That was my mistake. Um, thought I could get away with it. That was just wrong. Um, okay. Other yes. Um. I'm. I'm. I don't know quite how to phrase this. I'm having a hard time. We said there's a there's a svara that comes before Torah that if you don't understand it. You can't understand Torah, and that svara has absurd consequences, which we only don't follow because we have a pasuk which tells us not to. Is yes. that correct? Um, so the, so the, the svara that you have to have before you understand Torah, and you have to understand it like Rav Chaim, too, because if you understand it like Tosfot, then you don't understand it, then you can't understand Torah. But even if you do understand it correctly, you have to have an absurd notion of the value of life, such that you let people die all the time, but thank God then you have Torah, which tells you not to, and that's how we have a universally applicable ethics. I mean, I'm just, I'm, I just don't follow. That was, that was very wonderfully framed, Dov. <laughs> um, thank you. I, I, need to, I don't want to answer it, uh, answer it flippantly. Uh, I think the answer is going to be something like saying that we're trying to... Is Rav Chaim doesn't, here's, what I, here's what, I, what I would want to say. Rav Chaim doesn't say we legislate the svara, right? What he says is we use the svara at the legislative level. But once you translate a svara into law, 
right, that's always going to end up um, that's always going to end up with consequences that are unintended. So I think what is what I think what you're doing is you're trying to construct a halacha that conforms to reason, and that will in, and the way you do that is by setting up a range of countervailing forces, um, which which right which yield the right answers. Is I don't I don't think I don't not that there's a svara and then we have to counterbalance the svara. I think that's the way I would um, that's why I would like it to come out. Uh, but I have to say you did a, you did a, you did a an excellent job. Of exposing um, that I hadn't uh, that I hadn't set it set it I hadn't set it up in that way, and I have to think about an exact formulation. Um, okay, do you want to follow up? Does someone else have a question? No, no, we're looking forward to Thursday. Okay, thank you all very much. Uh, I'll see you Thursday or tomorrow if you want to see the, hear the end of the next of the bathtub uh, bathtub mikvot. A little bit less. Um, only is your curries, not your agvel yavor. <laughs> All right. Shkoyach, <laughs> lailatov.